Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. Before we get started today, we'd like to tell you about 2ProfitU.com, a ministry resource packed full of articles, quotes, book reviews, and commentary from Drs. Michael Catt and Warren Wiersbe. Sign up for free today at www.2ProfitU.com. That's the number two, Profit, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, U.com. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. Great temptations often come on the heels of our greatest victories. You and I need to be aware of how the enemy works, and so to make us aware of that, the Lord Jesus went through a time of tempting A time where after a great victory of his baptism and the descending of the dove and the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, Jesus is impelled into the wilderness led by the Spirit for 40 days to pray and to fast. After which time Satan comes and tempts him in three areas. John would describe these areas as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. They're Satan's three bullets that he shoots at us, the three arrows in his quiver. And as we've talked about these last two weeks, as we dealt uh, the first week with the lust of the eyes and the second week with the lust of the flesh and now with the pride of life, is, is that Satan approached Jesus on the basis of his deity. If you are the Son of God, he said, implying if and you are, then do these things. Help yourself out. Jesus, however, responds to Satan on the basis of his humanity so that we would understand that when we are tempted by Satan, there is a way that God has empowered us to respond to those temptations, that being the Word of God and walking in the Spirit. And once you and I understand what resources are available to us, then we are able to recognize the temptations We're able to realize that temptation is not a sin. We're also able to realize how we are to respond when we are tempted. And so what I want us to do this morning is look at that appeal to the pride of life, discerning his appeal to the pride of life in Luke chapter 4. Luke 4, verses 1 through 14 have been our text for these three weeks as we've looked at temptation. And I want us to pick up in verse 9 as we go to the last temptation. And we deal with how Jesus responds to this appeal to pride. Verse 9 says, And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan comes back for round three. He loads his gun again. He goes after Jesus. Now, if you remember, in the first temptation, he said, If you are the Son of God. That Greek word means if and since you are the Son of God. But in this third temptation, he says, If and I'm not sure that you really are the Son of God. It's time to prove it. It is time for you to step up to the plate, Jesus, and prove to us 
that you are the Son of God? Because I have some doubts, because by now, surely you would have appealed to your nature, and you haven't done that. So I want you to do something, Jesus. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. Now notice where Satan takes him. He takes him to the heart of the nation. The heart of the nation of Israel at that time and today is the city of Jerusalem. He takes him to the heart of the city. The heart of the city is the temple. That temple area and that wailing wall is still sacred even today to the Jews and to Christians. He takes them to the heart of the temple and to the highest point in the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, and he shows him all the area surrounding the temple. And he starts quoting scripture to him. Now you've got to understand how tempting this really was. Because here is the Lord Jesus, God in flesh dwelling among us, and he is being taken to the very center of worship of Jehovah God. He is taken to the place where trust in God is magnified and manifested in a temple. He's taken to the place where the Holy of Holies, where God's Spirit dwells. He's taken to the place where the Ark of the Covenant sits, where the blood sacrifice is given to make atonement for the sin of the people. He is the fulfillment of everything the temple stands for. And he's taken to the very top of it. And he said, throw yourself down. Jesus loved Jerusalem. He wept over Jerusalem. He ministered in Jerusalem. He would die in Jerusalem. He takes him to the pinnacle and he says something like this. Well, Jesus, here we are. You know, in a few days, you're going to start a miracle working ministry. Why don't you start now? Go ahead and get a head start. Don't waste your time turning water into wine in Cana. That's a little backwoods town. They've got welcome and exit on the same side. Now, there's not even a stop sign in that town. Don't even worry about that town. Nobody's going to know. They don't have a newspaper. They don't have wire service. No TV cameras are going to be there. But I tell you, Jesus, if you'll do it in Jerusalem, the religious leaders will know. The political leaders will know. Everybody that's anybody in the nation is going to know if you throw yourself down from this temple. Go ahead and get your start. And in fact, Jesus, let me tell you why I think you ought to start. You're real big into quoting scripture to me. You've been doing that the last two times. So I want to quote a little scripture to you. And Satan reaches back into the hymnal of the Jews, the book of Psalms, and he pulls out Psalm 91. Psalm 91 in verse 10 says, No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways, and they will bear you up in their hands lest you strike your foot against a stone. Here's what Satan's doing. Satan's saying, Jesus, you remember Psalm 91? It's a messianic psalm. And if you really are the Son of God, make it happen. Make it work. Do it. Make the angels spare you. Make them prove that you won't even have a bruise on your heel, that there won't be any marks on your body when you jump off. Just go ahead. It's a little scripture test, Jesus, to see if you really do believe the Word of God is the Word of God. And if you really do believe that you are the Messiah or if this is all some hoax that your mother put in your mind, let's find out. Throw yourself down. You see, Jesus, if you won't use your power to help yourself, then at least let your Father use His power to help you. 
If you're not going to do it, let your father do it. Let God show how great and powerful he is. In fact, Jesus, what we can do is we'll build this as the first bungee jump off the temple without a cord. But after all, you've got angels waiting. They're not going to let you be harmed. Go ahead and take the jump. Do something daring. Do something heroic. Do something unusual. Do something that draws a crowd. Get your ministry started off with a bang. Can't you see the papers? Man jumps from pinnacle of temple, lives to tell about it. Just think, Jesus. Imagine what this will do at the early stages of your ministry for your resume. Think of the poster that we could create. Think of the advertisement that we could do. Don't you think it's time for God to prove his word to be true? He's promised a Messiah. He's promised that Messiah wouldn't have his heel bruised. Come on, Jesus, let's just go ahead and jump. Let him fulfill the promise. Can't you take your father's word? Are you scared he won't come through? Come on, Jesus, throw yourself down. You see, this was the kind of miracle that Israel wanted. They wanted a Messiah to do something spectacular. And I got to admit, if I'd been standing around and he threw himself off and I was the biggest skeptic in the world and he didn't get bruised, I would believe he was the Messiah. Come on, Jesus, prove to Israel you're the one they're looking for. Come on, Jesus, prove to me that you really are the Son of God. Come on, Jesus. Prove God's Word to be true. Come on, Jesus. Prove it to yourself that God can be trusted. That is, if you are the Son of God. You need to understand the temptation of the pride of life because we all deal with these things. Somebody says, prove it, show me. I don't believe it until I see it. We get challenged from the time we are children to prove that we're men or to prove that we're going to grow up and we're not afraid of anything. It's that appeal for us to justify ourselves, that boastful pride of life. And he's saying to Jesus, come on, Jesus, Take the promises of God and take the power of God and use them for your own advantage. I tell you, Jesus, you do this, and there's nobody going to have any questions about who you are. They'll be impressed. Go ahead and throw yourself down. Do God's will your way. Do something supernatural. Now see, what Satan is doing is what he tries to do with all of us, to make us dissatisfied with the way God runs life. What he says is, you can't trust God, so you're going to have to take your life into your hands. Things go wrong, things go a little haywire in our family and in our lives, and we say, boy, I've got to get control of this situation. I've got to get my hands on this, and we, I've got to control this, and I've got to make sure this happens. And rather than walking in faith and trusting God, we try to grab everything around us and get control because we're dissatisfied that God's not controlling it the way we want it controlled. And so we begin to take hold of our lives and believe that we know what's best for our lives rather than God knowing what's best for our lives. And so we test God. And so we're guilty of the boastful pride of life. But Jesus said, it is said, 
you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. G. Campbell Morgan said, it is when we doubt a person that we make experiments to discover how far they are to be trusted. You see, to test God is to doubt God. To doubt God is to not trust God. And to not trust God is a sin. Because the Scripture says, without faith, without trust, it's impossible to please God. You know what Jesus said to him? I'm not going to use my power to get bread. I'm not going to abuse my power to get my Father's attention. He wouldn't use his own power for his own benefit. He would not abuse his power so that he could get attention. Don't put God to the test. Aren't you grateful that our Savior wasn't a circus clown? Aren't you grateful that he wasn't a sanctified stuntman who said, well, I'll tell you how I can prove myself. I'll walk on hot coals. That'll prove it. I'll stick my hand in the lion's mouth. That'll prove that I'm the Son of God. I'll take the dare. I'll take the test. I'll test God. I'll do it. It's the sin of presumption. Pride leads us to presume that we can back God in the corner, that we can test God. It was the sin of Israel in the wilderness, well-fed, well-clothed, all their needs met, yet they grumbled and griped about how God worked, and it says they tested God, and with many of them, God was not pleased. Sounds like us, doesn't it? God feeds us, God clothes us, God takes care of us, God meets the needs in our lives. One thing goes wrong and we complain, God, where were you when I needed you? That's testing God. There's another way we test God. We test God when we begin to say, well, I can sin, it's okay. I know it's wrong. I know the Bible says it's wrong. I know I shouldn't do it, but after all, that's what grace and forgiveness is all about. Even if I do sin, God will graciously forgive me. That's abusing grace. That's testing God. That's seeing how far you can go before God slaps your hand. That's abusing the free forgiveness that's been offered by God. It is saying to God, God, I'm going to sin so that grace may abound. Paul said that some will ask, may we sin so that grace may abound? And he said, may it never be. When we fall into sin, that's one thing. When we walk into sin knowingly, that's something else. That's testing God. That's testing God. Now, churches are guilty of this. Let's talk about some ways. First of all, by expecting God to bless our unprayed-over events. <laughs> How many of you have been in a church that's done something, and by the time you either got right up to it, got in it, or were just through with it, you said, boy, I don't know where God was in that, but he wasn't anywhere around. He just wasn't in it. Yeah, you've seen that one, hadn't you? Uh, <laughs> I mean, God just wasn't there. Here's what we do. We go out and we plan something. We put it on the calendar, and we say, now, Lord... We've put your name on this. We've put your church's name on this. And if you don't come through, if you don't make us look good, you know what's going to happen? This community is going to think less of you. So you better come through for us, God. We've got an agenda, and we're going to ask you to bless it. Rather than going to God and getting his agenda and find out what he wants to do, we have a tendency to get our agenda and then ask God to put his rubber stamp on it. Secondly, expecting God to do the same thing over and over again. I've wondered sometimes, do you think God ever turns to his son and says, you know what, I'm so tired of that. I wish they'd do something new. I'm so weary of that. Do you think God ever says, been there, done that? 
say, well, I don't like change. You know, change bothers me. Change just bothers me. It just, it just, it gets on me when things change. I like things to be the same. I like it to be predictable, and I like to know what's going to happen. I like things, everything to be just the same. I like it just smooth and laid out. I don't like any bumps in my road. Listen, that day will come when we take you to the funeral home, lay you out, and everybody will look and say, doesn't he look natural? Folks, change is a part of life. It's just a part of life. It's a part of living. We have to change. It's a part of adapting. It's a part of growing. And doing the same thing over and over and over again. Have you ever thought about this? This is just a thought. We sit on 17th century inventions called pews. We play 18th century instruments called organs and pianos. We sing 19th century hymns, and we wonder why we're not relevant in 1990. Well, that's the way the God of our fathers did it. God didn't always just speak in English, folks. He speaks in a lot of different languages. He does a lot of different things. And we are in danger of testing God when we say, God, this is the way our church does it. It better be his church that does it. Be careful lest you think that one of the ways that you prove God is to put him to the test that he's got to keep doing the same thing over and over again. Thirdly, when we expect God to bless entertainment over exposition. When we expect God to bless entertainment over exposition. Just trying to do one thing after another to wow people. Just, you know, today's sensation is tomorrow's boredom. Nintendo's not good enough, now it's Super Nintendo. Sega's not good enough, now it's Sega Genesis. Now it's Sega Genesis with 32X, and then it'll be something else. Why? Because we are a quickly bored society. And if we don't watch it, it gets into the church. And we think, if they don't entertain me, I'm not coming. When the Scripture says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Number four. When we expect God to honor verses taken out of context. When we expect Him to honor verses taken out of context. Now, if you remember, Satan quotes Psalm 91, but he takes the verses out of context. He does not quote verse 14. And listen to verse 14. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. See, here's what Satan does. Satan will take a verse of Scripture, and he will use it out of context. Jesus said, and the Word of God says, and the psalmist says, the reason that the angels will spare the Messiah is because he loves me, not because he tests me. There's a big difference. Not putting me to a test, not testing my love, but because he loves me, I will deliver him. Now, you need to watch this. This is very important. Because there are all kinds of people out there who are teaching portions of Scripture, but not the whole counsel of God. And you need to be careful, especially when you see a little dot, 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 four words, dot, 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 and a whole doctrine or a whole precept or a whole principle is built out of four words with dots on either side of it. You need to test the spirits and you need to check the context because we do not build our ministries out of a portion of a verse and then lay our principles on top of it. 
We build our ministries out of the Word of God and build our principles down from the Word of God. Our principles are never exalted over the Word of God. You don't take verses out of context to prove a point or to get your way. It's a very, very dangerous thing that happens in our society. Number five, expecting God to bless a ministry built on pride. Built on pride. God hates pride. The proverb says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. James says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. God hates pride. Number six, expecting God to bless the sensational. Expecting God to bless the sensational. Now, did you notice that Jesus all through his ministry refused the sensational? At his birth, he came in a manger. He didn't go to the Marriott Marquis. He just went to a manger. During his earthly ministry, he lived in an unknown, secluded town. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? At his baptism, he went out to the Jordan with John the Baptist, who was rejected by most theologians. He went to the wilderness. He walked among the common people. He did miracles for the common man. He never tried to impress the religious community. He never tried to ascend to be the pastor of the temple. He just walked in common ways with common people and lived his life. His disciples said, Jesus, one day they came to us and said, Jesus, you're really on a roll right now. Momentum's really going. Hey, let's go to Jerusalem and take the town. Let's have a crusade in Jerusalem. Jesus said, my time has not yet come. One day they came to Jesus and said, Jesus, uh, we kind of heard you mumbling over there in your prayers and talking about going to Jerusalem and asking your father to give you strength. We're a little worried about that. Listen, Jesus, uh, uh, let's not go to Jerusalem right now because they're going to kill you. And Jesus said, my time has come. I must needs go to Jerusalem. How would you like to be the Son of God? the creator of all the universe. You speak the world into existence and you stand for, before some two-bit ruler named Pilate and some two-bit clown named Herod and they are mocking you and saying, you Jesus, do me a miracle. Come on. You know what we'd do? I'll tell you what, you want to see a miracle sucker? I'll show you a miracle. How'd you like to float above this temple for about 40 minutes and me drop you on your head? How would you like to be on the cross with nails in your hands for sins that you did not commit and nails in your feet for sins that you never committed and a crown of thorns in your head and whips on your back and have them mock you as the Son of God and say, He can save others, but He can't save Himself. I'll show you how to save myself. Angels, get out here! Show these Roman soldiers a thing or two about what an army really looks like. But he didn't do it. You know why? Because he never went for the sensational. Folks, listen. God's not into proving to anybody that he exists. It just says in the Scripture, in the beginning, God. He doesn't argue for his existence. He doesn't have to prove it. You've got a problem if you think you can disprove it. The sensational. God being lowered to the level of show business. Prove something, Jesus. 
And see, this is one of the things that happens to us because in our culture, in our society, with television ministries and radio ministries and great crusades and all these things, come here so-and-so at the great crusade. Signs and wonders and miracles and the lame will walk and the blind will see and the dead will raise because so-and-so is coming to town. Let me tell you something, folks. Anytime the man is exalted above the message, it's sensationalism. Come see me, come hear me, come watch me, come observe what I can do. Listen, that's sensationalism and that's testing God. That's saying, now God, I'm going to get up in front of 10,000 people and you sure better come through or you're going to look stupid. Come on, God. You've got to prove something here. There have to be some wonders. There have to be some miracles. There has to be shouting because if you don't, well, God is... It's not me at stake, it's really you because I'm just doing this in your name. Everybody knows I'm doing this in the name of Jesus and it, it's just going to be your problem. So, so what are you going to do about it, Jesus? The boastful pride of life. So let me give you three suggestions because you already have inside of you what you need to deal with temptation. First of all, be on guard. Don't ever think that you get to the point where Satan can't stumble cause you to stumble in your life? Secondly, be prepared. Did you notice that Jesus kept saying, it is said or it is written, it is said or it is written? See, he was prepared. He knew the Word of God. The problem with us is that 23% of professing Christians have never read one page of the Bible. And Satan comes and he tempts us and we go, wait a minute now, now my mama left me a Bible in her will. Let's see now, you see, and there's a, there's, a, there's a book in the Bible that some apostle wrote called Concordance. Let me look back here in the back under that word and see if I can find that word. I'm sure there's something in here for it. Now, now where did I put the Bible? Now, I know it was there somewhere and we got it out last Easter and, and prayed at the table. And I know it's, and by the time you do that, he's already whipped you all over the floor. You have to be prepared. Jesus didn't just quote the Scripture. He lived the Scripture. The Scripture says, Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. And then be discerning. Be a person of discernment. Walk with the Lord. Recognize what Satan's trying to do in your life. Recognize how he's trying to work in you. During the French Revolution, the heir to the throne was taken captive by a hostile mob. The mob did everything that they could by taking him captive and putting him among the dregs of society, the worst characters in all of Paris. They wanted him to denounce his throne. They wanted to denounce his king, the king. They wanted him to say, the, this system of government is not working. I refuse to serve this way. The people need to have a voice. They need to be in control. And they did everything they could to test him and to tempt him, to get him to renounce the fact that he would one day be the king of France. And with every test, the young rising monarch would stomp his feet and say, no, 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 I was born to be a king. You walk out of this building, and Satan's going to come, and he's going to tell you, lower your standards. Compromise your life. Live below where God wants you to live. Live below your privileges. You're a child of the God, but be a little bit of a prodigal for a while. You stomp your feet, you raise your Bible, you do whatever you got to do. But in your heart of hearts, you say to Satan, No, I was born as a child of the king, 
and I will not succumb to being that kind of person. I'm not going to do it. Rejoice, you're a child of the king. So why are you living like the king is broke and like he has no power and like you have no resources and like you can't have victory? Because the scripture tells us, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Do you understand the significance of that verse? It means that the Holy Spirit of God living in you, isn't it? I, I'm just a layman. I'm just, I'm just a common guy. You know, I'm not a theologian. Greater is he that is in you than the one who roams the world seeking whom he may devour. Live up to your privileges, church. Live up to your calling, Christian, because the power is available for you to do it. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Kett. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.